right. Well, it is, again, great to be with you and great to kind of turn our focus into the Easter season. We're excited to celebrate together. Like Dan said, if you've grown up in church, uh, you know this week as Palm Sunday, right? And so maybe as you were a kid, I remember this happened to me, uh, the church I was growing up in as a very little kid. Uh, we had a guy that I guess somewhat looked like Jesus, so they rented a donkey from someone and had him ride in, and we all get to hold the palm branches and wave that around. And I don't know if you've been in that situation before, but when we say Palm Sunday, if that doesn't make sense to you, it's the idea of the week before Easter, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem and everyone was celebrating, and that week turned on him very quickly. And the things and the focus turned to we need to get rid of him, not worship him, not celebrate him. But, and that was Friday, right? And then we get to celebrate Sunday, which is what this week represents for us. And so we're starting our Easter series. Now, before we get to that, I do want to give you a little sneak peek at something that I think is pretty cool that the families that come with kids are going to get to see next week and get to be a part of. Um, we got an email a couple weeks ago with uh, some resources that we thought were pretty cool. And one of the things that we had said um, as elders, even back into last year, was we wanted to make sure that every kid in our church had access to the scriptures. Now, we know that that is largely the case, but we wanted to make sure that we made that available and to give the opportunity for parents to really be able to engage with their kids through scripture. Um, And so we got these resources and we thought that through. And so next week, one of the cool things, every preschool family is going to walk away with one of these ABC books um, and the illustrations that are done in these ABC books and the other book I'm going to show you in a minute is, is done by someone who's worked for Pixar and other large animation companies. Um, and so the illustrations inside are pretty cool. And so for our younger families, they're going to get to walk through like learning their ABCs using scripture. Um, and then elementary school families, uh, not every kid, but every family is going to walk away with one of these, which is 104 chapters of Bible stories. Again, all illustrated really well and really cool with the stories laid out from scripture and a prayer at the end to do together. Um, there's 104 stories in there. So that means if a family decides to do story time together with their kids twice a week in a year, they'll go through the entirety of scripture together, which is really cool. So these are gifts that we're going to give to our families. So even if this might be something where you know that you have somebody that you want to invite that has kids, we're excited to be able to give them one of these. We have extras. If we run out, we'll buy some more so that they can have them. But we're just excited about that. So look forward to that, families that are coming next week, and maybe use that as a, a leverage, right? You get a cool gift if you come uh, to church Easter Sunday. But we're super excited to celebrate this week on Good Friday and on Easter. And so in that spirit, we're starting a series that we're calling The Problem of Jesus. Now, full uh, disclosure, we did not come up with this title. This is the title from a book uh, by one of my favorite authors named Mark Clark. He's written a book called The Problem of God, and now he's doing The Problem of Jesus. And so I thought that's a good way of saying it. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean, the problem of Jesus? And let me go back to those of us who maybe grew up in church. If we, were grow- if we grew up in church and we were taught certain things about Jesus, we were taught cer- certain things about our relationship with Jesus, we don't necessarily see a problem with Jesus. Like what we see is the good stuff and we were taught to understand certain things about us and about him. And we, if we grew up in church, it largely at times, we kind of just move forward with that because that's what we were taught. It's like two plus two is four and this is my relationship with Jesus. Like that's just kind of how for some of us it has played out in our lives. But for others, Jesus creates a very large problem. For others that didn't grow up in church or didn't grow up in this reality, there's some things that we have to look at internally and understand about ourselves if Jesus really was who he said he was. 
And even for some people that grew up in church, and maybe you've walked through this some, uh, people my age are going through it specifically, that when we look at what we were maybe taught in church and then we look at the way things work in the world, they don't always match up the way we thought. And so now we've got questions and we've got issues and we've got a process. What does that mean? And how do I put those two things together? And so we're going to walk through over the next few weeks talking about Jesus talking about why we believe what he said, why we believe he rose again, why we believe what the scriptures teach us about Jesus are actually true, and what do we do with the friction that that can cause at times. And so like I've said already, the reality of Jesus actually can create a personal problem. If you've never thought about it this way, it means that if Jesus really was who he says he was, it says something about you. It says something about me. Jesus said things about us, about his followers, about people that would know him and understand him or hear the things that he would teach. And so the problem is this. The reality of Jesus causes the problem. The problem is if a savior exists, that means there must be a sinner. Jesus came as the savior of the world. Well, if there needs to be a savior, then there actually needs to be a a sinner or there needs to be someone to rescue. This is how many of our favorite movies work, right? If there's a superhero or there's a protagonist, they're supposed to be saving someone else. So there has to be someone in trouble. There has to be someone that needs saving. And in the biblical narrative, that person is the sinner. Now, here's the problem. No one likes the word sinner, right? I would much rather be called a mistaker than a sinner or an accidenter than a sinner, right? Because we make mistakes all the time. People just make, you know, you make a wrong turn, you go the wrong way, you drop something, like you just, you make a mistake, right? Or you accidentally do something. Even when maybe we respond to someone the way that we know we shouldn't, but we didn't plan to, right? Someone said something to us and we automatically, if something came out of our mouth that shouldn't, and we just go, oh, I'm sorry, that was a mistake. I didn't mean to say that, right? Because anytime there's an accident or a mistake, it can, if we can write it off as that, it removes some of the blame from us right? Even though we did it, if we didn't mean to, that's different than if we meant to, right? But the word sinner doesn't leave any room for that. There's not a way to kind of look at that and go, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, but I did it accidentally. It's like, no, there's a responsibility here that falls on the sinner. And so you see where this tension starts to happen, because if you accept who Jesus is and who he claimed to be, that we believe he said he was in the scriptures, then you also have to recognize that there's something true about you and that and, and me. And that truth is that we are sinners and that we're responsible for what happens when we do things that are wrong. And we don't get to just call it a mistake. And for some, that's a very difficult thing to handle. And even when we think about it ourselves, when we remove ourselves from just like, oh, that's just what I was always taught. When we really let that kind of sink in, it doesn't feel very good. It's not something that we like to celebrate. So what do we do with that? And I want to talk about that today. So we're going to start in Romans chapter 5 today. So you can go there in your physical Bible. If you've got your phone, turn it on. Again, if you want to, you can take your Next Steps card. You can scan this little QR code on the back, and it'll take you to our follow-along site where you'll get all the notes and all the verses today. Very easily, you can ask a question or submit a prayer request even if you want. But in Matt, or sorry, Romans 5, we're going to start in verse... 6. So Romans 5 verse 6 says this, and it'll be up on the screen for you. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, really important thing I want us to understand here, right? 
This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. And he's explaining, he's going to explain the gospel. He's going to explain a lot of things. The gospel is all through the book of Romans. It's a great read. And what does he say? He doesn't say he came and died for you sinners, right? He says he came and died for us sinners. It's so important to recognize that the, the gospel writers, the writers of the epistles, Paul, they agreed that they were included in the camp of sinners. They were so convinced by Jesus that they were the ones that he needed to come and save. So when we look at that and we go, okay, they're writing not from a perspective of, I'm just going to put this on you. They're, they're pulling themselves into this. And so when we read this, even though it was to the, the church in Rome, we can understand it and say, okay, he died for us sinners. But what does that first sentence say? When we were utterly helpless. When's the last time you felt utterly helpless? You couldn't fix it. You couldn't change it. You had no control over it, and you were watching things happen that you had no opportunity to fix. Nobody likes to feel that way, right? If I, I especially, like, I like to be in control of things, make sure I know what's going on, make sure I can not be caught off guard. I'm a very prepared person. I have way too many things in my backpack because I don't want to be caught off guard by what might happen, right, when I travel places and things. And so, like, I like to be that way. And I think all of us have that level of I want to be in control or know that I can do this. And what Paul says to Romans, he says, well, we were helpless. We were not able to control what was happening And so problem number one that is presented as we think about this problem of Jesus is that I or we could do nothing to save ourselves. You know, Christianity is not unique uh, as a religion and what religion overall tries to do, right? Religions overall just recognize that there's a God, there's a deity that's up here somewhere and we're stuck down here, right? And so the opportunity or the, the desire is for the person who's stuck down here is to somehow shrink the gap between God up here and me down here. And so you look at all religions and that's the goal. There's a problem that's recognized and that problem is the separation between us and God. And so in some religions, that means praying multiple times or giving so much or serving so much. And if you do that, you'll kind of climb this ladder to get closer to God. In some religions, it's living one life and then like leveling up. And if you live a bad life, you're going to level down, right? And so you just kind of keep going and you try and get up and up and up to try and fix this problem where there's separation between me and there's separation between God. And I have to try and close that gap. But what Paul tells us and what Jesus teaches us is that we didn't have the opportunity to do that. There was nothing that we could do. God's up here and we're down here. There's nothing that we could do to close that gap. God had to come from up here and come down here to close that gap. He says, while we were still sinners, not mistakers, not accidenters, right? While we were still sinners, Jesus comes to earth to die for us. Recognizing us in our sin, understanding we couldn't fix it, and showing up in order to be the answer. I want to keep going in Romans 5. We're going to go to verses 7, 8, and 9. It says in verse 7 to 8, Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Verse 9. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, 
he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. So he says it again, right? He came to die for us while we were still sinners, and since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. That leads us to our second problem. Our second problem is, without a Savior, God's condemnation is on me. This is the, this is the problem that people really have an issue with. And it's, it's tough to... to it's, it's first of all hard with the first problem to say, I can't fix my problem. We don't like to be able to say that. But then to say, and then the next step is that if I don't believe Jesus then God is mad at me and God's condemnation is on me. And when I die, I'm going to be separated from God and not united with him. This is not an easy thing to think through or easy thing to accept. But here's what I think is true. When we, when we have a problem with God saying that there is condemnation on us for our sin, here's what I think is true. I think what's true is that we automatically, for some reason, assume that God owes us something, or that we, as humans, belong connected to a perfect, righteous, and holy God. Just think about it this way, right? If we we're going to worship God, there's all kinds of gods we can look at through history. There's gods that are still worshiped today. But you look back, especially in Jesus's time, there were all different kinds of gods that people worshiped. And they would make idols and they would say, well, maybe this God over here is better in this situation and this God over here is better in that situation. So they would worship different things. And so Christianity was set apart in that there was only one God. But our God that we worship is one that is claiming to be perfect and righteous and holy and all in control and all powerful and is perfect. Of all the gods that you would ever think you would want to worship, I think it's that one the one that seems to be perfect and righteous and holy. And so when we look at that, though, for us to say as humans, as people that even just make mistakes and are clearly not perfect, to say that we deserve to have a place with a perfect, righteous, and holy God doesn't make a lot of sense. If he's perfect and righteous and holy, we don't belong in that space. Let me say it a little bit differently, right? Think about um, the difference between when you sit at home and have dinner with your family. You're probably pretty at ease, you know, it's kind of normal. You're used to that situation. You might even like go get home from work and like put on your pajamas and go to and sit at dinner with your family, right? You're just, you're just comfortable. There's, it's where you're at and you don't have to worry about anything. Now imagine if I said you were going to have dinner with the five most famous people in the world and you were going to sit at that table. You're going to show up to that dinner in your pajamas? Probably not, right? You're going to sit up straight, you're going to think about how you're eating. You're probably going to think about how loud you're chewing. You're going to think about like not spilling things. You're going to think about letting them have, you know, like not bumping into them or like whatever. You're going to, you're going to like ask your questions very carefully. You're going to be on edge. There's like, because that's another level of person. You're going to think about that and be like, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be the weirdo at the table, right? Even though you already feel out of place. Like, and that's just other people. And yet we kind of assume at some level that we belong with this God, even if we don't decide to follow him. And like God owes us something when really he is so much separated and different than us. And he says, the holy and the righteous and the perfect God says, when you sin, you separate yourself from me and my condemnation is on you. It is not an easy thing to accept or understand 
but it's the truth of our position compared to a holy, righteous, and a perfect God. So then what do we do with that? What's the answer? The answer is the Savior comes to rescue the sinner. Like I said, we could do nothing to separate the gap between us and God, but God could do something to separate the gap between him and us. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews is a deep and sometimes very confusing book. But there's a lot of really good stuff in Hebrews. So we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 24. Verse 24 says this, For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. Now, what is he talking about? Why does he go to this space of thinking about a holy place with human hands? We got to go back, right? We got to back up in time and think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament, as the Israelites were kind of traveling around, they had the tabernacle. Tabernacle was a tent, and there were certain areas where God would reside, and those were his specific places, and only the high priest could go into those spaces. And so Hebrews is, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Christ didn't enter that place made with human hands. He's not worried about entering the tabernacle or even the temple anymore, which was only a copy of heaven. He's saying that tabernacle was a placeholder, right? It wasn't the intention of the place where Jesus was always meant to reside. He entered into heaven itself to appear before God for who? On our behalf. Let's keep going in verse 25. It says, he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. So before Jesus was around, these sacrifices that would happen, now you've got the temple in Jerusalem, not the tabernacle anymore, but the temple. They would go in every year and there was this offering over and over and over again. But the writer of Hebrews says, and he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again. It wasn't meant to be something to happen again and again and again. Verse 26, If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again, ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. Verses 27 and 28. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, because they're already dealt with, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. See, what the scriptures tell us is that even though this problem is there for us to accept, the fact that I can't fix the relationship between me and God, that I have broken by sinning, the fact that I need Jesus because God's condemnation is on me because there is punishment coming for my sin. I have to accept those things. But then what the scripture tells us is Jesus did all the work that we've ever, to fix all of it. We couldn't do it, but Jesus did it. And he didn't do it so that he'd have to die over and over and over again like these sacrifices that would happen, but he did it in a way so that there would be one sacrifice, one time, and it's over and it's done with and all the sin is gone. And it has disappeared forever if we find ourselves in Jesus. And so here's the question we have to really think through.
And maybe for those of us who have been followers of Jesus for a long time, we understand this. But I want to kind of come back and help us understand what it means as we walk into this Easter season. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've got to ask this for yourself. What if your sin put you at odds with God? So if you're listening to this, whether you're in the room, you're watching online, you're listening later, right? And you're thinking, this Jesus thing, I don't get yet, or I don't trust yet, or I don't want to believe it yet. But here's the question, right? If Jesus said, if Jesus was who he said he was, if that's true and our sin put us at odds with him, what can we do about it? We can't do anything about it. We have to trust Jesus and understand that he did the work that we could not do. See, here's the great thing. Jesus canceled the debt that we owed, and it only needs to be paid once. See, here's what's easy. Here's what we get into sometimes, and I get stuck doing this too, and many religions work this way, that we would like be able to be good enough to earn our way to God. That's easier sometimes than saying, I have to trust Jesus to do all the things. I have to hand my life over to Jesus. I don't want to hand my life over to Jesus. I'd rather just be a good person. And we think that like if we had these scales that we could tip and you just take like jelly beans and put them on like here's like one bad thing I did, but here's two good things I did, right? We'll take that and, and at the end of our life, we'll just, the one side will weigh more and we'll be good. And when we get to heaven, God will look at us. Or when we die, God will look at us and say, we've fixed it. We look good. We've done more good than bad. Or at least I've done more good than that person maybe, right? I'm not that bad, so I'll be maybe in a good space. Do you, do you understand what that is? That means that's us trying to pay for our own sin over and over and over again by doing more good than bad. That's what it's trying to do. And so sometimes, especially if we are not brought up in religion, we haven't heard religion, Jesus hasn't been shared with us, sometimes that's the process we can get in where we say, you know what, I'll just try and be good, and I'll just pay for the bad things I do with doing more good things. But, but this is clear, that we could not, we were utterly helpless. And here's the thing for us, especially if we are followers of Jesus, our goodness doesn't matter unless it's found in Jesus. It doesn't matter how good we are, how much we follow the rules, how much we read our Bible, how long we pray, all of those things, it doesn't matter if it's not Jesus who does the saving at the end of the day. And all of those things are good, but we can't pay the debt. Only Jesus can pay that debt that we had. I want to go to one more passage. I want to go to Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 13. Sorry, I'm a little bit bouncy today. I'm kind of going all over. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, says this. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. So let's just go back. He says it again, right? What can dead things do? Not much, right? It says you were dead because of your sins. You had no opportunity to be with God because of your sins. And your sinful nature was not done away with. Next verse in Colossians. Sorry, I think it's 14, but I forgot to change the verse there. You were, oh, sorry, never mind. It's just, there was more to it. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins. So we were dead. We couldn't fix it. We couldn't do anything about it. We were utterly helpless. Then what? God makes us alive with Christ. 
for he forgave us all our sins. Then go on to 14 and 15. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So he says, Jesus took all those things, he nails it to the cross, and it is dead. And what's dead now is not us. We get the opportunity to be united with God and have eternal life. What's dead is our sin. And the control it had over us is now gone. And so what's the victory that we see in this? If we're going to accept the problem of Jesus, I can't fix it. God's condemnation is on me, and I need a Savior. What does victory look like? Victory looks like when a momentary death gives way to an eternal life. When a momentary death gives way to eternal life. Now, what does that mean, right? Some of you heard this week. You saw me post it on Facebook, maybe. Teacher slash parent. Same person was killed outside of Conestoga Christian. They were turning into the school. They got hit by a car. They said she died instantly. Momentary death, but she knew Jesus. So it gave way to eternal life. Now, you might say, that's a momentary instance. What about times where there's sickness for a long time and it's drawn out and all these problems, right? But here's what I want us to understand. When you're talking about eternity, 80 to 100 years in this world seems very, very small. It's a moment. It's a blip on the screen. And so, yeah, there's a momentary life where we suffer. There's hard things. We get sick. We struggle. And we're go- the scripture said, we read it earlier, everyone is going to die. It's just going to happen. But the victory in that is when we do pass on and we do stand before God, when he looks at us and sees Jesus, we get an eternity of life with him. And that gap between God and us that we are so aware of, if we're honest with ourselves, is completely erased for all of eternity. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, if you follow me, that is the, that's what you get. That's what happens to you after you pass on from this world. Now, there's a, there's a facet to this question that I want to talk about for a minute. Because some people will ask this, right? Did Jesus really need to die? Some people will ask this, especially if they're talking about Christianity and, and wondering, why, why is this the case? If God is all-powerful, right? If he's all good and all great and all this stuff, right? Couldn't he just like, snap his fingers, wave a magic wand, and like just forgive us all. And Jesus wouldn't even have to die. Like all of our sin would just go away, all of the weight of that, it would just disappear. Why did Jesus actually have to die? Here's my answer to this. Right, remember, we're talking about a holy, a perfect, and a righteous God. What do righteous people do? Righteous people uphold justice. And if God is going to be a just God then there has to be punishment for sin. It can't just be erased, right? And and sometimes forgiveness, absolutely. God offers us forgiveness, grace, all those things. But here's what I know to be true. If there was a judge who was put in a courtroom and all day, all he did was hit the gavel. I guess they still do that, right? They pop the gavel, whatever. And and everybody that came in was just forgiven, 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 no matter what they did. They just got to go free. Doesn't matter. Just go. You're free. You're forgiven. No problem. We would look at that judge and say, that is not a righteous judge. We would look at that judge and say, he's not doing his job. Because there needs to be payment for sin. 
Justice needs to be done. And so if God just kind of, you know, waves a magic wand or something like that and just everything disappears, he's actually not being just and righteous and holy and perfect. He would be just erasing everything without the payment being made for the decisions we've made to be wrong. And so Jesus had to die. But when Jesus died, he offers us that eternal salvation with him. So here's the, here's the rub, right? If I believe in Jesus, I have to deny myself. I have to recognize I can't fix my problem. I have to recognize God's condemnation is on me. And there's nothing I can do about that. But if Jesus is right, it's absolutely worth it. Because at the end of our life, we stand before God and we're seen in him and all of our sin, all of our mistakes, all of our accidents, all of our intentional sins are erased and they don't matter because God sees the blood of Christ on us. Now there's a piece of this that's very, very important. Because anybody at any time in history could come and they could make a lot of claims about what's going to be true of their death or of their life, right? There's a lot of people that can make a lot of claims that way. But the question that we really need answered is, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? See, people could make those claims and they could be like, yeah, this is going to happen when I die. And then they die, everybody dies, and then what happens after that? Their legacy maybe goes with them. But if Jesus really was who he said he was, and he really did what he said he was going to do, and the gospel writers were telling the truth that he actually rose from the dead, then all of this becomes true. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Why can we believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? So here's two two challenge questions I want to give us before we split. The first is for people who have not grown up in church or have not decided to follow Jesus yet. And that question is, what is holding me back from believing in Jesus? And I ask this question sincerely. I ask this question without you needing to do anything about it. I just want you to dig in and kind of go, what is the thing that's keeping me from believing in Jesus? If th- what's the linchpin on like if that, if I could understand that, or I would see this to be true, then things would change for me and I would actually believe. What is that thing? And if you can name that thing, I would just invite you to come back and be part of the conversation. Just see if we have the answers or see if we talk about that thing. Or if you'd like to, you can, on our website, you can submit a prayer request and just submit it and say, this is, this is what's stopping me from believing in Jesus. And I won't respond to you. I won't spam you. I'll just read it and understand that's where you're at. That's for people who maybe have not decided to follow Jesus yet. But this is for, for those of us who've decided to follow Jesus. Here's the question. What is holding me back from living like I believe in Jesus? What's stopping me? Does your life, does my life, look like I believe all of what we said to be true? Because if we believe all of what we said to be true, we have to deny ourselves. We can't be self-righteous. We can't be arrogant. We have to submit to God and go, I couldn't fix this. God fixed this for me, and I am only who I am because Jesus says so. So what's holding us back from that? For some of us, it might be embarrassment. Like, I don't want to look weak, or I don't want to look this way, or I don't want to look like 
I'm a religious fanatic, right? I don't want to look like that. So I don't really tell people what I believe. I don't really act that way. For some of us, it is the desire to be in control. And when we say, oh, I can, I can fix all my problems. I can be the one to do it. I can be the one to look good, or I can be the one to make sure that these things fall into place. And really, we need to be thinking more in terms of, I'm going to let God take care of that. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do what I need to do. But I'm going to allow God to be in control of my life. Because when we try and hold on to it, we're not allowing God to have reign over who we are. It's us trying to fix the problems we have instead of allowing God to take over and take control of that. So same thing is true for us, right? What's the thing? What's stopping me from living the way I know Jesus has called me to live? And how do I change that? I'm really excited to walk through this series. I think there's going to be a lot of questions that we bring up and have conversations about that are not just happening in church world, but are happening outside church world. And people look at and they ask difficult questions about Jesus, about our faith, and we're going to be able to kind of walk through and hopefully answer some of those. And for some of us, it's coming back to this idea, right? We've had this resolved graphic on the back wall here for the whole year. This is all part of that conversation. The reason that we're having this conversation is because we want to make sure that we are establishing ourselves on the foundation of Jesus. And I've told you guys before, that's intentional to not say we're establishing ourselves on the foundation of the church or on the foundation of scripture. That comes out of the foundation of Jesus. And so we're resolved to be in that place. So we're going to answer this question. We're going to answer these questions about Jesus because they are the foundation of our faith. And we want to know why we believe what we believe and why we depend on Jesus to be the one who pays for our sins and why we believe he was the one who came and erased our sins instead of us needing to be responsible for that. And what happens when we get to that place is freedom. Because when we get to that moment where I say, I'm not responsible for my own righteousness anymore, Jesus is. It takes all the weight of trying to span that gap between me and God, takes all of it off of me, and it just goes right to Jesus. And I don't have to live in the place where I have to try and be more righteous than not or weigh the scales, and I gotta worry about this. No, I'm, I'm called to follow Jesus. He recognizes that I'm going to mess up. That's why he died for me while I was still a sinner, right? It doesn't say he died for us when we got our acts together. It's not what it says, right? While we were still sinners, And so when we get to this space and we understand that, there is freedom. And I want us to walk out of this series over the next couple weeks feeling free, recognizing that our righteousness is not found in us, but it is found in Jesus.